All right. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome to the 8020 Baseball Podcast Masterclass. This is episode 106. Wow. Our weekly get together. This podcast, this masterclass is focused on youth baseball. And while I say it's focused on youth baseball coaches, definitely a lot of advanced stuff that could be used at a high level, at the highest of levels. But our focus is youth baseball and presenting a message that's efficient, that is effective because it's been tested out there in the trenches. And our message here is going to be prioritized. In today's episode 106, this week's episode, we are going to discuss two aspects of coaching. One of them is working with the players, working with our hitters, and how they can benefit if we enforce good plate approaches, good hitting plans, good hitting approaches. Those all kind of fall under the same umbrella. And the second thing we're going to discuss is the benefit or a side effect of good coaching. And we'll get into that in part two today. All right. When you go up there and you're coaching your hitters, when your hitters are up there, they're rolling through, they're hitting through their batting practice rounds, their live BP or off a pitching machine, essentially everything that's not a hitting T, they are working their hitting approach, their hitting plan. The pitch selection is very important, of course. And when facing live throws, pitches in batting practice, whether that's off a pitching machine or off a live pitch or a coach. Hitters should know two strikes, less than two strikes. Now here is a massively helpful benefit by making sure that hitters are working their swing selection and their approach and plan during practice, because that's where the vast majority of reps are going to happen. In fact, if more than 10% of a hitter's reps come in a live game, that's not good. More than 90%, 95%, 98%, 99% of a hitter's reps should come in the practice and training environment. With that said, a huge benefit of working the plate discipline, swing selection at a high quality, high volume rep total. Coaches and players will see an improvement. If done correctly, they will see a continual improvement and optimizing of the hitter's ability to check their swing before committing to full swings. Some of the best hitters in the history of baseball were really, really good at swinging until they realized the pitch was not in their hitting zone or outside of the strike zone, and thus they could shut their swing down quickly. Check swings, the art of the check swing. If hitters don't get a lot of reps during batting practice and during those sessions in which they're training and their hitting plan, their hitting approach, they are not going to have very many check swings and built in to their batting practice routine. Here's the thing. This is a huge benefit by practicing during batting practice, during times where you're facing a live arm, a pitching machine, hitters working their approach, their plan, pitch selection are going to get better and better and they are going to be much better at stopping their swing a quarter of the way through, 30% of the way through, some 40% of the way through where they have not committed to a swing, where they have not actually swung, but they've, they're have they ready, they're ready, they're ready, they're ready. They're thinking swing, 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 take rather than take to swing. They're thinking, I got to be ready. 
I have to be ready to hit this pitch because when you're facing faster velocity, which isn't, of course, every pitcher, but it is out there and it's out there at each level and definitely more and more as you get to the higher levels, hitters need to be ready to swing. You're talking hundreds of seconds here. You're talking tenths of seconds, not a long time to decide. So hitters need to have that swing going almost every pitch and then they shut it down. Now, where they shut it down, where they shut that swing down makes a big difference where they are capable of shutting it down. Good hitters work that take, that take where it's a 35% swing, a 40% swing, but they don't fully commit to the swing because they realize that pitch is not in their hitting zone with less than two strikes, where it's outside of the strike zone and it's not going to be called a strike in their plan two approach, in their two strike approach. This is important. Just like we are trying to strengthen our swing muscles and the hitters are trying to get better with their swing muscles, they're trying to swing a little bit faster if they can, more controlled. They're trying to develop their swing skills going forward towards the ball and driving the ball and hitting the ball. They also need to develop, hitters need to develop the ability to hit the brakes, to put the brakes on. So we want to have strong accelerator muscles, but we want to have strong and quick response brake muscles. This allows hitters to commit more without fully committing to the swing. This is so important. And this is a huge byproduct, a huge benefit of practicing hitting approaches and the hitting plan during batting practice rather than the typical, hey, you get five pitches. Hey, you get eight pitches this round. Hey, you get 10 pitches this round. Oh, we're going to go oppo or this. But there's not a clearly defined, for the most part, throughout the baseball community, there's a huge competitive advantage sitting here. And at the end of the day, you want your hitters to be better. They need to know what they're doing up there. It's not just the swing. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Timing and swing and swing path and all that and not having a bunch of extra movements in their swing, especially early on, being quick to the ball. But pitch selection, swinging at quality pitches, pitches that they can drive, pitches that they can do some damage on with less than two strikes. And that damage may be just a hot shot through the five, six hole. It may be a hot shot through the three, four hole for a single. It may be a hit off the wall. It may be a hit down the line or in the gaps. It may be a home run, but it's something that they can drive the ball and it's not going to have a high percentage of being a ball in play. That's an easy out for the most part. Now with two strikes, it the plan shifts, the plan changes. Now with less than two strikes, they need to be able to, hitters need to be able to have that swing ready to go. Not just ready like, oh, I'm, my hands are up and I'm ready to swing. I'm in this batter stance, but to actually start that swing almost every pitch to start it, to be ready because hitters don't have the time to see the pitch for a long extended period as it's coming towards the plate, as it's coming towards the hitting zone or the strike zone or just towards their area. And they don't have the time to then decide, oh, okay, I'm going to swing now. You can get away with this from time to time. Hitters can get away and they'll drill something opposite field just inside the foul line from time to time. Of course, that does happen. But overall, it's not going to allow you to hit the higher velocities and it's not also going to allow the ability to stop and take pitches that are not in the zone or chase. It'll help hitters from chasing too many pitches or a high volume of pitches, which is obviously the goal when it comes to plate discipline is with less than two strikes to swing at those pitches in the hitting zone and take pitches that are not in the hitting zone or definitely not in the strike zone. By training this, by training these these hard takes, what we can call hard takes, hard takes, these like, ooh, they were ready to swing and they held up at the last second. They held up at the last second. I mean, the hardest of takes is in that Giants-Dodgers game five playoff where they actually called a swing. It's a bad call. It should not have been called a swing, but that's about the extent. That's about as far as you would want. Now, I thought the hitter did a good job watching the video of it. It looked like it was a great job of swing, swing, and then stop at the last second. And the umpire said it was a swing, but you kind of see that's the, the far end of the swing. You wouldn't want to obviously go past there. Then you start getting into that. Well, 
well, it's then it's up to the umpire to call it a ball or strike. But you want your hitters to practice really being ready to go. And you want to see their swings. You want to see their swings start to stop sometimes like right boom. Like you want to see these hard takes. Obviously not on pitches right down the middle and meatballs. That's not what I'm saying, of course. What I'm saying is the hitter is ready to smoke that pitch. Boom, boom, ready to hit it, ready to hit it. And then boom, they hold up. They hold up. The worse the pitch, the worse the pitch, the less you're going to see this, of course. If the pitch is up at the batter's eyes, then you're not going to see much of a swing. You shouldn't see much of a swing commitment. And if the pitch is way outside or bounces halfway to the plate, you shouldn't see much of a swing commitment from your hitter. Maybe a slight movement, but not a big commitment. We're looking for hard takes on pitches that are, say, breaking balls that look like they're coming in and they just drop down out of the zone. Or a fastball that comes in a little high but stays up above the strike zone, stays up above that hitting zone. You want to see hard takes on those pitches that are appear out of the hand to have a chance to be a strike, but as they get to the plate, they clearly are not going to be in the hitting zone, much less the strike zone. That's the hard take. Terrible pitches, you don't really have a hard take because there's really not anything that shows it's going to be a pitch out of the hand worth even attempting a swing at. So having this benefit, having this benefit of being able to get hitters to train those hard break muscles, those hard take break muscles, hard take break, taking the pitch, not swinging at it. That is really, really, really important. And all great hitters, all great hitters do this better than average, I believe. If a hitter doesn't develop those break muscles on their swing, if they don't develop the ability to stop and not fully commit once their bat starts going forward, that presents a lot of problems because now you have a hitter that once they commit to swinging, say more than 10%, then they just, they're going to go around or they're not going to be able to hold up their swing. That's problematic because now you either, you have to really be good at your decision-making really early as a hitter. And what we want hitters to do is be able to see the ball as long as they can before deciding swing or not. Obviously, they're going to have to decide at some point. They can't decide when that ball is 10 feet from home plate. It's going to be too late. But they need to be ready to go, ready to go, ready to hit, and then have a hard take. But this is something that is so important that really a lot of uh, great coaches out there teaching the hitting swing are doing a great job on that side. And I think this is the next area of swing development is that ability to see how long we can wait or how long or how much of a swing we can commit to without a full swing, or without it be being considered a full swing and thus a strike or a strikeout or whatnot. Practicing the check swing develops the body's ability to to slow down, to stop the swing better and better, allowing for more of a swing before stopping when the pitch is determined to be outside of the hitting zone or the strike zone. So I'll say that again, practicing and repping the check swing, it develops the body, the hitter's ability, it develops their body's ability to slow down and stop their swing better and faster, allowing for more of a swing before stopping when the pitch is determined to be outside of the hitting zone or the strike zone. This is hugely advantageous. You could also take this a step further, and I think this isn't a bad idea. You can have them take out maybe their size bat or maybe a little bit heavier, maybe a few ounces heavier a bat, and have them rep a few swings, half swings, where they're stopping just before the halfway, or have them do a full swing at a tee, say the ball's on the tee, it's right out in front of them, maybe slightly ahead, but I would put it right out in front of their belly button, and I would have them swing, say, hey, you need to swing as fast as you can, but not hit that ball, all right? I want you to accelerate that swing of yours as fast as you can, but stop before you get to the ball. You could do just some dry swings without a ball on a tee. You could do different things. And what you're doing is you're you're practicing those break muscles. You could also have hitters swing 
even though they're not switch hitters, they could have some swings the other way around, a little more muscle symmetry. Most hitters are not switch hitters, so you wouldn't want to do a lot of this repping from the opposite side. But it isn't a bad idea if you have a right-handed hitter to have them switch over and take some swings left-handed, especially in individual training environments where there's more swings available, where there's more time available, where there's more pitches and things that can take place. I like this idea of being able to train or training hitters to be able to stop their swing, have some strength to stop that bat. And I think that if you just did a few, maybe 10 reps at the beginning or at the end of a batting practice session, or it's part of your routine of an individual coaching routine, I think this can be really big. And I think if you can get a little bit heavier bat, a couple ounces, don't get something so crazy that it messes up their backs and their hips and things like that, or messes up their swing path and things and gets them bad mechanics and, and bad technique with their swing. But I don't think it's a bad idea to have them swing something a little heavier and stop it. Swing halfway, stop it before it gets halfway. Swing, swing hard, halfway, stop it. And this really starts to, they'll feel it. They'll feel the muscles that they're not used to using as much come into play and tense and tighten to stop that swing. So to wrap up this part, practicing the check swing, whether it's through batting practice and you really want players and you teach players, teaching your hitters to show a hard take, especially on those pitches that are fringe pitches, pitches that are close, but not quite in the hitting zone, pitches that are close, but outside of the strike zone. Those are the pitches you want to see your hitters have hard takes on. You want to see them really being ready to hit. So if that pitch happened to be down the middle, you could say, looking at them going, yes, you would have been able to hit that. You would have been on time for that pitch had it been in your hitting zone. They should look like they're on time for every pitch and then decide whether to swing or not a little bit later. It shouldn't be before they start their swing movement for the most part. For the most part, the decision to swing or not should start after they start their initial movement, that movement of the swing coming forward. Now, it may be within a couple inches. It may be within a foot. That's going to vary. Now, if the pitch, like I said, is way outside or way up or way down, then this doesn't apply. But for most pitches that are that come out of the hand that appear to have a chance to be around the strike zone, there should be a hitter up there that's ready to swing in that the decision not to swing should come a little bit later in the swing. Now we're talking milliseconds, of course, here. But when I say a little bit later, it's milliseconds. It's not minutes or se- even seconds. It's milliseconds. But nonetheless, developing this, practicing this, and even doing a dry runs of these check swings. Not too many of them because you don't want your players to develop overly develop the the technique and the muscles of, of stopping. You want them to drive through the ball, right? You want them to drive balls. But having this ability to stop the bat quickly and not commit to swinging is very advantageous in terms of pitch selection, getting on base more often, and also not sacrificing your at-bat or not giving away an at-bat because you swung at a pitch that was more of a pitcher's pitch, but out of the hand looked like it might be, and it just made some movement to the outside corner or dropped a little bit below the strike zone, and it turns out to not be a good hitter's pitch. So don't just practice the swing, practice the take, but not just with the eyes, with the swing, practice hard takes. All right, part two of today's episode. This is something I got to share. A lot of you, you see this, a lot of you understand this already, but I just want to make sure we're real clear on something. Players will feed off of you as a coach. They will feed off of you. You won't even see it sometimes. You won't notice it. You won't realize what you're doing is the reason that they're doing what they're doing or their vibe. Your vibe is what their vibe is or how it influences it, but your coaching vibe is much more impactful than even we know. Not with every player. Some players, they don't go up and down or they don't vibe with the coach just because the coach is a certain way or their attitude's a certain way. But a lot of your players, in some ways, they'll do it without even knowing subconsciously or unconsciously. They will follow the vibe that you're putting off. 
as a coach, just having a positive vibe by, for example, praising players, you will start to, I guarantee it, you will start to see more of your players complimenting and praising other players. If you're a coach that goes out there and pokes fun and shoots on your players and this, that, and the other, you're probably going to see more of that from your team. And that's not healthy. That's not healthy. Also, if you can, as a coach, show some humility, show and that you can check your ego, the players, that helps them. That helps the players. They don't feel like they need to be perfect. If you can show that how you handle a mistake, how you deal with something that didn't go right, that can be very beneficial. Now, before moving forward, let me hit something real quick. I do hear a lot of coaches talk about in the baseball community or share out this strategy or suggestion that coaches should admit when they're you know always wrong and make a big deal about being wrong and, and not what I mean by big deal is they need to, you know, I hear this like message like, hey, coaches, don't be afraid to tell the players they screwed up here and screwed up there and did this wrong. Now, I agree with this. I agree with honesty, but sometimes too much is not good either. First off, we don't even need to be over coaching the hitting swing or the pitching delivery. We don't need to over discuss our massive coaching flaws that we might have. Now, from time to time, it is useful. It is beneficial and it can be helpful to show the players that you are admitting to a mistake or that you made a mistake and then you explain how you're going to correct it and then you actually do correct it. See, I don't agree with the every time a coach makes a mistake, you got to make a big deal. You got to bring it up. You got to explain it and things like that. You got to own it. I think that if you need to, you'll know when you need to. Don't shy away from it, but it doesn't mean you need to explain it because at the same time, I don't think you should be calling out your players on every mistake they make, on every error they make. I've been very upfront with this. You can go back 50, 75 episodes and I hit it right away. I said, here's the thing. I think you should have a default coaching rule that you do not correct a technique error, a physical error. You should not correct a physical error that your player makes until the second time it happens in a practice. During practice, you should never address the first physical error. If it's a hustle issue, if it's a disrespect issue, that's different. That needs to be handled right away. And it needs to be handled clearly. And it needs to be clear that you're handling it. Everybody needs to know that that is not going to fly. But when it comes to physical errors, a ground ball goes between the infielder's legs. An outfielder drops a fly ball. A hitter swings at a bad pitch. A pitcher hits a batter with a pitch or walks a batter. I think it's important that we give our players a little bit of slack so they don't feel like we're yanking it so tight that they can't, they get so tense and their muscles tense up. Same thing as a coach. We don't need to sit there and acknowledge all of our mistakes. You need to, as a coach, acknowledge them and be honest with yourself. And as a coaching staff, you need to be honest and upfront and talk about all these. And you need to definitely be aware of them for yourself. And you need to make sure that you address each mistake you make, right? And you, that you put a plan together or at least a solution in mind for the next time and how you're going to handle it and how do you get better. And at the end of the day, the coaches that get better, the coaches that show improvement, that's what the players really see. You know, you can't tell players, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that and not do it. That's the worst thing. You're better off not saying it. It's kind of like having rules. You're actually better off not having any rules if you're not going to enforce them. You go, well, you got to have rules. Not if you're not going to enforce them, because if you don't enforce them, now you've doubled down. That's the worst thing. It's better to not have rules than it is to have rules and not enforce them. Here's why. Because when you didn't have rules or you didn't put the rules in, into effect, you didn't put your word out there. You didn't say, hey, these are our rules and these are the consequences and I'm the coach and I'm going to enforce these. And that's what you're telling them. But then you don't enforce them. You don't uphold those rules, those expectations, those standards. Well, now you've <laughs> well now you've lost credibility. Your word has been diluted. It has lost value. And you do not want your word, your trust, your consistency and what you're saying to lose value. That's just not a good place to be. Have few rules, enforce them. Same thing with overcoaching, whether it's yourself or overcoaching the players. The main message from part two. The main message that I want to share here in part two of this week's episode is that you have to trust that your leadership, your coach, 
coaching is doing more than what you can see. It's doing more than what you can see. And that could be good and that can be bad. So let's make sure that we're doing it in a good way. Let's make sure that we are doing it in a positive way. Let's make sure that we're coaching in a positive, productive, healthy way, because that influence is much deeper than we acknowledge. And I think the same thing goes for somebody that's kind and caring or a good parent or a good teacher, good coaches, a good experience, say, from customer service at a business. I think it goes a lot further. I think people don't realize that, oh, that couple just went home. When my wife and I have good service somewhere or we have a good experience somewhere at a store or at a restaurant or wherever, it could just be like we went rafting down the Boise River and we had a good experience. We had a good experience with the customer service, the people there. Well, we were talking about that later. We were sharing that with people. It, It was not just, hey, great, thank you. That's what the person saw. That's what the people see initially. They go, oh yeah, they said thank you, but they don't realize the residual effect. The residual effect of positivity is massive. It really is. And it's not seen or heard that often. So as coaches, keep that in mind. Even though you may not get a huge plaque that says, you know, world's greatest coach, even though you may not specifically see data points on the benefits that you've given your players and the positive effect and how they've benefited by having you as a coach and how the positive effect on the rest of their life, you have to know that praise, being a positive, consistent coach, instilling discipline, having high expectations, but realistic expectations. Being a good coach has a massive residual and side benefit and side effects that are so positive and beneficial that just continue and go on and on. And it may be 20 years from now that some of your players are going to have a aha moment where they say, oh, Coach Joe or Coach John or Coach Brad or Coach Ryan, man, they got it. Oh man, I'm so glad they did this. I'm so glad. I Oh, I see why they did that. I see how it helps me now. I see how I'm benefiting and why it was important for them to coach me that way. It may be 20 years before you get that, where they, your players even have the understanding, the the conscious understanding that what you did benefited them. So a lot of it can happen right away. The, the praise can be hugely beneficial right away. You get your players playing loose. If I watch another team and their team is playing tight and that team's playing tight, that is not, to me, that is a massive red flag on the coaching staff. Doesn't mean they're jerks. Doesn't mean the coaching staff doesn't know the game. What it does tell me is that they haven't created an environment, especially if it's halfway through the year or towards the end of the year. It tells me they haven't created an environment at practice or during the games. The vibe, the environment is not as loose as it needs to be. It should never be a a free-for-all. It shouldn't be unchained, unhooked. There should be parameters. There should be some slack, but not endless slack. When I see a team that plays tight, that's a red flag, that they're not being coached with balance. You want a team not to be all willy-nilly with their uniforms not matching and doing all sorts of different things. And you don't want to see players just disregarding the signs that, oh, coach gave me a drag bun or coach's rules were drag bun at the third baseman's back, but they're swinging away or they're swinging 3-0, and even though you have a default rule of a 3-0 take. But that doesn't mean you're not going to let them swing 3-0, but say you didn't give them the, the 3-0 green light and they do it anyways, or they're running wild and like stealing bases without really a game plan or without you as a coach working with them and, and kind of giving them the okay to do that. And, and there's no judge. They're just doing it at just being crazy and not really no strategy. You have to have some parameters. You have to have parameters, but you want your team to play loose. And all this comes into just that benefit that we as coaches, these side benefits that we have. Like if you're always yelling and screaming at every single mistake, well, you're going to get players playing tight. That's a negative side effect. But praise, cheering, the hustle, the great plays when it comes to hustle and effort and energy or the out of box thinking that your players might do in a drill or, or to get an out, those things need to have some energy behind them as a coach. You need 
need to share energy with that. And that will have a massive impact. And all the other stuff that you do as a coach, discipline. Players hate discipline early. They hate rules, standards. Kids hate standards, rules, discipline. They don't like it, but they need it. And the benefit for that will come way later a lot of times in life. But man, that payoff will be massive. So that was my main message here in part two. So part one, really got to think about building the brakes up as much as the swing. Not as much, but as we build up the swing, the power and the technique of our swing and our swing path and our timing, we also have to be cognizant of the benefit or the value of being able to stop our swings quickly as well. So we can do some power takes, some hard takes where we can really be ready to hit, but then back off at the last second and not have committed to a swing. And then in part two, I wanted to share with you coaches, especially you youth coaches, you have to believe me on this. You have to believe me. Your benefits, the, the benefits from you as a coach, if you do your job right, if you do it right and not perfect, but if you do it in a good way, you praise, you have expectations, you uphold, you're very energetic in a positive way. You keep your cool, you keep it in perspective and you really think about long-term development here. That's going to just be a massive, massive, massive positive side effect that's going to come and it's going to come over. There's going to be a residual positivity from that. And so you have to know that what you're doing isn't just benefiting the kids right there in front of you right now, but you're really trying to benefit their, you're, what you're doing is really helping them even past this season, past this game, this practice, and definitely maybe even past their baseball career. And hopefully so. All right. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We're getting into December here. Really want to make sure that you are all, this is something that you should all be focusing on with your players. If you're working with them now or just your son or daughter right now, or if you're working with the team, this is a really good time, December, to continue building out that strength. You want to build out strength, especially the legs. We've talked about the exercises, just things like basic squats and split leg squats and lunge work, getting the hip girdle stronger by doing side leg raises, reverse leg raises, forward leg raises. Those things right now are hugely beneficial because you want to have strength, but you don't want to start adding a bunch of new exercises and more volume once the workload increases come season time, right? When they're pitching a lot, playing a lot of innings, squatting behind, catching a lot of games. You want to make sure that you really incorporate it now and build up the strength as much as possible and then maintain it throughout the season. You can say maintain. Some coaches continue to build throughout the season the strength. Some coaches back off a little. I'm not going to get into that right now, but it is important to really, really, really get that leg strength, core strength, shoulder strength built up right now because you don't want to have to wait until it's too late. You want to start building that up now because it does take some time. So December is a great time, even through the, the winter break, really focusing on leg strength, core strength, shoulder strength, building that up, working on starting to get your throwing program going, some long toss, get that long toss built out. If the arm's a little sore, you can kind of work it, but if you need to back off a day or two, but you want to have some of that long toss routine going and leg strength, this is the time of year. If, even indoor, even in cold weather places, this is something you should start dialing up right now. When I say dialing up, dialing up a little bit and progressive. It should be, it should progress. All right. With that all said, I hope each of you has a wonderful week. I look forward to being back here with you next Tuesday when the next episode comes out as we continue to build that paradigm to solidify, optimize that coaching paradigm, our strategies, the mindset. It's not about just grabbing a drill here and grabbing a drill there. Well, that's important, but it's about the ongoing mindset development of a good coach, a high quality coach. And that's really what we're doing here. That's why I do it weekly, 30 minutes-ish weekly to continue that growth, to continue that operating 
operating system update that we want to keep doing as long as we're coaching. So until next week, take care of yourselves and your health. Take care of your health, especially this time of year, all this stuff. Just take care of your health. I know you're doing it, but just keep taking care of your health so you can take care of your families and your friends and you can be a better coach with that energy. Go out there and you can take that energy and that health and be a much better coach and and leave the baseball community a much better place. Make a much better influence, a much more positive influence on your players. Look at the coaches like Coach K, Coach Saban, these coaches that go out there and they have a lot of energy. They have energy, they take care of themselves, they take care of their health so they can have that energy even at like 70 years old and they can continue. I mean, Coach K, I think is like 74. I don't know, he's super old. I mean, guys, guys old enough to be like a great grandpa and he's out there with energy with those college kids. Now, not like he did, you know, 30 years ago, but take care of yourself so you can go out there with better energy because those players are gonna get it from you. They're gonna take it from you. All right, to be a good coach takes energy. Make sure you're rested, ready to go. And when you go out there, you're ready to go as a coach. And until next week, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.